Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 19, as we read verses 1 through 24. Hear now the word of God. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But my cow, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So my cow let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. My cow took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and came to the great well that is in CQ. And he asked, Where is Samuel, and where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths 
on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are in need of your love, your power, and your transforming grace. Would you send your Spirit together with your Son to shape us and make us holy? Give us daily strength to believe the word of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight's passage has David entering uncharted waters. He has been living in Saul's orbit for, uh, in good standing for a while. Um, he's had great successes. He's been used by God in many ways to be a blessing to Israel and a blessing to Saul. Yeah, all the while, something has been growing. Something has been metastasizing. Um, something has been nagging at the heart of Saul. And that thing that has been growing and nagging him is a disturbing level of jealousy, which he cannot shake. And we saw that envy, we saw that jealousy in the life of Saul last week. And so tonight, that jealousy comes to a head. And as it happens, we learn about the nature of sin as we look at Saul and look at this situation. We see, first, the nature of sin. Second, we witness worldly attempts at the slowing of sin. And then third, we will conclude by seeing God's sovereignty over sin. And so tonight, what we're going to see is that sin will destroy a person from the inside out, spreading from the heart into the affections, into our relationships. Now, our only hope and certainly Paul, Saul's only hope is a work of Christ in his heart and in his life. That's what we need. That's what Saul needs. So we have a lot of similarities with Saul here this evening. But first tonight, we get a look at the nature of sin. The nature of sin. I want you to notice that the way it spreads is not dramatic and quick. It's something that's slow and steady. In his book, The Great Influenza, which I've been reading recently... John Barry talks about the 1918 Spanish influenza. When the Spanish influenza struck, it didn't come all at once. Instead, it happened in stages. At first, there was an, an initial stage, and then later there was a second, much more dramatic, much more deadly uh, return, resurgence of the flu. So I just want to read to you a little bit from John Barry where he talks about how this thing happens over time. It's not usually quick and sudden and dramatic. So here is what John Barry says. Many histories of the pandemic portray the eruption of the second wave of the Spanish influenza as sudden and simultaneous in widely separated parts of the world and therefore deeply puzzling. In fact, the second wave developed gradually. When water comes to a boil in a pot, First, an isolated bubble releases from the bottom and rises to the surface. Then another. Then two or three simultaneously. Then half a dozen. But unless the heat is turned down soon enough, all the water within the pot is in motion, the surface, a roiling, violent chaos. So this is what John Barry says about pandemics. They, they don't begin with an explosion of symptoms suddenly. They start with a single person, and then another, and then another, and then a few more, until eventually you have a full-on pandemic. And, and this is what we've seen in the life of Saul as well, because when Saul first becomes king, 
things kind of seemed okay. Uh, he, he, he seemed kind of religious. He followed the rules. He, he kept up appearances. He, he enjoyed the novelty, maybe, of living in such a time and being, being a king. Uh, but his life was filled with all of these little compromises that he was allowing. And every single one of those compromises was one of those little bubbles rising to the surface. And all of those years of allowing the temperature of his own heart to be turned up in the worst way. As he's tolerating these sins. And what happens is as the, the heat is turned up, you start to see these bubbles that have begun to burst on the surface of Saul's life. So notice how sin flourishes in his heart. At first, David loved, Saul loves David in chapter 16. In chapter 16, he loves David. And then he comes to fear him in chapter 18. And in chapter 18, he has this murderous thought. And we didn't spend any time on it last week when we were looking at the envy in Saul's life. But one of the major moments actually last week in chapter 18 was in verse 11. Because what happened, it was Saul attempted to murder David by pinning him to the wall. That's the whole reason why he's now trying to figure out what he does next. But notice, I want you to notice though that all of this starts in the heart. A pot doesn't boil for no reason. It boils because the temperature has been turned up. Something prior is going on. And so what happens in Saul is with, with Saul is the same thing. He doesn't just suddenly have a murderous thought pop into his head and decides, I'm a psychopath today, I'm going to try to kill David. That's not the way it works. What begins as love turns to fear in Saul's heart, which becomes hatred. I want you to also notice that his, his plan becomes bigger. The, uh, of Saul's plan becomes bigger. The circle of involvement becomes wider, and it becomes wider, and more people be become roped in and become participants in Saul's plan as he tries to kill David. See, see first he personally tries to kill David, and, and then he tries to scheme to put him in harm's way. And then finally, when we come to chapter 19, he puts away all the pretense, and he stops being polite to David, and he stops being this benign ruler. And immediately we know what's happening in verse 1 because it says, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. So now the circle is very wide indeed. Saul doesn't even care what people think anymore. There is a, there is a time in your life where sin can be so overwhelming that you do not care what people think anymore possible. It happens here in the life of Saul. What's happened? This, the heat has been turned up for so long. The bubbles have been bursting on the surface so much that now the boiling has begun. You see, in the worst possible way, Saul has come a long way. If you had gone to Saul 10 years earlier and said, hey Saul, someday you're going to kill a young man who is just trying to help you. You're going to pick up a spear, and you're going to look at him, and you're going to throw that spear, and you're going to try to kill him with it. If you had told Saul that ten years before, there is no way he would have believed you. He would not have believed you. He would have said, you are lying to me. 
I have known people who committed deeply, deeply, deeply grievous sins, public sins, and they would have said the same thing. They would have said, never, never, that's not me. I would never, ever do that. But you see what happens is sin doesn't start off with an explosion, just like a pandemic. It doesn't start off with, boom, everyone's got the Spanish influenza. Sin was tolerated little by little. It grew, and it crept in, and it became a part of the lifestyle, and it became tolerated. See, first it was disliked, and then it was considered, and, and then it was tolerated, and then it was appreciated, and, and then it was enjoyed, and then finally, sin was acted upon. See, it creeps up in our hearts and when it finally does manifest in an act, it makes perfect sense to us by that point. Sin is so irrational. It has to weave such a tale in our own hearts so that it captivates us, so that we think this is the greatest thing I could possibly imagine doing right now. Forget all those other things that I should have known better about. Doesn't, doesn't Saul show us here that the nature of sin is that it gradually grows so that if we aren't daily making war against it, if we aren't constantly fighting it and refusing to give it a foothold in our life, then we're welcoming it. And we're turning up the heat. And one day, if we don't yield these things to Christ and if we don't submit, we will find ourselves at a full boil wondering, how did I get here? the nature of sin though it creeps in as it's tolerated in our lives second tonight we see the slowing of sin and what do i mean by the slowing of sin well we see repeatedly that saul is surrounded by these people who throw obstacles in the way of, of his wicked plans he wants to do bad things and there are people who seem to for one reason or another manage to stop him at least for a while a couple of the people that this passage mentions. One is Jonathan. Think of Jonathan. As soon as Jonathan hears that Saul wants to kill David, in verse 2, he is reporting to David and warning him. And then Jonathan goes to his father in verse 4, and he says, you know, I heard what you said back in verse 1, and uh, this is a terrible idea, Dad, and let me tell you why. And he tells him why he shouldn't hurt David. And and I want you to notice something about how he persuades Saul. He makes this argument, and the argument is airtight. There's, there's no room for, for wiggling here. Um, David has done nothing against you, he says. It's a good reason not to kill somebody. He says, David has done nothing against you. You have zero reason to harm him. You, you would be guilty of shedding blood if you did this. Just reason after reason why... He needs to roll back his plan to assassinate David. And what is the result of these arguments that he makes? And the result is Saul responds and says, okay, you've got a point. I won't kill David. And, and I think maybe in that moment, I don't know if Jonathan believes his father, but he must because he loves David. And he ends up giving David the all clear, right? He breathes a sigh of relief. Meanwhile, Saul has a very different lesson that he's just learned from this conversation. Okay, I can't trust Jonathan to be part of my plans 
my evil scheme to kill David. Now that's the lesson he learns. He doesn't learn this would be bad to do. He learns who he can trust. Can't trust his own son anymore. And so what happens is he, he makes this appeal to Saul, and it's, it's legitimate, the things that he says, but his appeal is a bare appeal to, to politics, to information, to expediency, to wisdom, to intelligence, but it doesn't change what, change what matters. Because Saul, Jonathan can't get to Saul's heart. He can't change what's going on in his soul, so all he can do is he can make the head argument. And so when he makes the head argument, he slows the sin, but he doesn't stop it. There are all sorts of evils in our society, and uh, you could just go down the list of the sorts of problems that, that beset us as a civilization. And for every single one of those problems, you can find an academic research paper about why these things are harmful for society. One of the things I have noticed is that you can read all of the books on the harms of pornography. It doesn't seem to be reducing the usage of it. You can write all the books you want about how murder is wrong, and you can make the appeal and show people that murder is bad, and murder hurts a society, and it ruins families, and people don't stop murdering. You could, you could come up with every single worldly statistic and piece of information, and it doesn't get at the heart of the problems. Because the heart of the problem is the heart. The heart of the problem is not, oh, you just need more information. Now, Jonathan does his best here. And I don't really fault Jonathan for this. He does the best that he can. He's speaking to an unspiritual person. He's trying to slow sin. But he cannot stop the sin. So that's Jonathan. But then, later in the passage, we have Michal. And Michal is David's new wife, and she sort of steps to the center stage for a portion of, of the narrative. And so she catches wind um, that assassins are coming, and so she sends David away. She warns him, she sends him away. This is actually her idea. Then apparently she, as part of her plan, she has a large idol in her house. This idol is called a teraphim in the Hebrew. It's got a name. It's, it's, it's an idol. There's no other word for it. And so she takes the teraphim, and she puts the teraphim in the bed, and she dresses it up to look like David. Uh, you can just imagine Saul's, or, uh, David's amazing hair uh, as she puts the hair, fake hair on this idol. And then she lies to the messengers and says that David is sick. And then when they return, they figure out she's lying. And then she lies even more and says that David threatened to kill her if she didn't do this. One of the things that happens is that when you're talking about whether or not you can lie to somebody in authority, oftentimes Michal is raised as an illustration of a righteous person who uh, lies to the authorities and shows us that this is okay to do. Now, I know that some people do use her as the example of the righteous lie. After all, she is protecting God's anointed king. She's protecting David. But let me, let me just suggest something. The only thing righteous about Michal here is that she is protecting David. She is protecting God's chosen king. She is protecting an innocent person from being put to death. But let me just say, that does not make what she does here righteous. Let me mention a few things that are worth considering. Uh, first, notice that, that, that she's trusting in deception and trickery to achieve her goals. 
Now, I realize that does sometimes happen in Scripture. There are, there are times when faithful people uh, have no choice but to withhold the truth from people that have shown their intention uh, to misuse the truth. Um, in other words, they have shown that they are unworthy of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You can think of someone like Rahab, right? Rahab makes the decision not to turn over the Israelite spies, for example, and she is praised for it in the book of Hebrews. So, so I do believe there are praiseworthy examples of people who don't tell the truth and the whole truth to those who make clear they're going to misuse the truth for evil purposes. I don't believe this is an example of that kind of righteous sleight of hand that we see with Rahab and that we see with the Hebrew midwives. Typically, when this is praiseworthy, it's done by a righteous person. The Hebrew midwives and Rahab the spy are praised in the book of Hebrews as examples of faith in action, as heroes of the faith to us. But Michal is not that. Michal is not a, an example. She does not make the hall of faith. And there's a reason for it. Um, her dishonesty here uh, might be for the benefit of David, but as this book continues to unfold, we are going to find out things about my cow. We're going to find out my cow is not a righteous woman. In fact, uh, she later comes to hate and despise David. This is not a woman of faith here. If there is a case to be made that there is a such thing as righteous deception that's legitimate in some, some limited circumstances, we don't want to make my cow the poster child for it. Notice that even once the ruse is up, she gets discovered, and she keeps lying. She keeps lying. She lies about David. She says that he threatened to kill her. So, so I just want you to notice this. This is not a woman who is protecting David. This has nothing to do with protecting David, because when she tells this lie, David does not seem to have a greater innocence. In fact, this is a new crime. He is threatening to kill Saul's daughter. So this lie she's telling is not to protect him. It is to protect her. She is looking out for herself. She's not looking out for David. Second, we learn something else of her character. Do you see it? It's right here. Just plain as day. She has an idol in her home. She has a teraphim. She is not a God-fearing woman who is serving the Lord out of a deep-felt sense of love for him, right? She trusts in the idol to deliver David. She lays it in the bed in David's place. She puts goat hair on it to make the deception complete. Think about it. She puts more trust in the idol than she does in God to deliver David. See, Michael's, Michael's actions and Jonathan's persuasion all those two things can do is sort of stave off Saul's attack on David. All they can do is slow things down, but they don't change Saul's heart, not in the least bit. Saul is as convinced as ever that he needs to kill David. They're throwing obstacles in his way, but they can't stop him. We see this then, and perhaps you've seen it in your own experience. Sin can be temporarily subdued but not defeated by human means. You see, those won't get at the root of the problem, the thing that's, that's causing all of these problems. If we go back to the boiling water illustration, the heat is on. Until you deal with the heat, you can't stop the boiling from happening just by uh, 
putting something over those bubbles because new ones are going to pop up in their place. You can't stop this forever. The sin keeps growing because it hasn't been dealt with at the root. See, see Saul never hates his sin. And he never replaces his love for sin with a greater love for God, and so he can never have victory over it. Never. What might this look like in our lives? Well, we, we can and maybe should find ways to flee from sin and make opportunities to sin rare. If we can find uh, objective actual things that, that can get us away from sinful opportunities, then let's take those opportunities, right? I remember um, our vice president being mercilessly mocked for his policy of not being alone with a woman who isn't his wife. And, and yet there's something to be said for a life of integrity where we rob ourselves of opportunities to sin. There's something to be said for a, a person who has a history of drunkenness taking practical steps so that it is difficult for him to abuse alcohol again. That's a good thing to do. There's something to be said for taking extra steps to make sin difficult from an external perspective. There's something to be said for putting blocks on your internet at home so that you don't have constant, unrestrained, unrestricted access to anything on earth that's on the World Wide Web. There's something to be said for that. But those steps should be taken in conjunction with what the Bible calls mortification. That's the word. Mortification. Actually putting sin to death down to the level of desire. To go back to the illustration, in other words, turning off the heat. Turning off the heat. Getting rid of that desire. How do we do that? Well, we cannot do it only by hating sin. We cannot subdue those desires. We can't put those desires to death only by hating, hating sin and only by hating the consequences of sin because those are the surface-level solutions. We put sin to death ultimately not by hating it, but by replacing it. What do we replace it with? We replace it with a greater love for God by doing things that grow our love for God by enriching our delight in him so that we replace a sinful love with a greater love for God and a greater love for his righteousness, by delighting in goodness, by wanting goodness, by treasuring beauty, by treasuring the good things that God has given to us, right? That is something that we do. We replace the sin with a love for the good things, for God himself, and for things that he gives to us that are a blessing and loving them for his sake. Now, that is not an instantaneous thing. That is a lifelong process. What's the lifelong process? We're turning the heat down. And you'll have seasons where you are, where you are in prayer, you're in, you're in the scriptures, you're reading the Bible, you are growing in the Lord, you are at church, you're participating, you're in other people's lives. And what you will notice during those seasons is you will notice that dial getting turned way down. It doesn't go into the off position, but it goes way down. That's, that's sanctification. That's what you want for your life. And here's the question, though. Do you only try to change behavior in your life? When you see sin in your children's lives, do you only try to get at the behavior? Stop acting bad. Stop doing bad things. Stop saying bad things. Stop being mean. Stop saying mean things. 
You do that in your kid's life? I notice that in my own life. I default to that. Hey, kids, stop being bad. I'm sure I've done it even just this week. Even as a pastor, it's much easier. It's so much easier to focus on behavior, to focus on activities, to focus on moralism, right? When you, when you begin to despair of yourself, and when you begin to, to think, well, where is our church going to go from here? One of the easiest things for a pastor to do, it is like, it is what we call red meat. You're just throwing red meat out. It is the easiest thing in the world for a pastor to start preaching about how bad society is and how bad the world is and how bad everything out there is. It is just, it's just, it's just like, it's like roadkill to vultures, you know, it, it's just, it's the easiest thing to default to as a pastor. And you're never wrong, right? Because it is wrong to murder. It is wrong to steal. It is wrong to commit adultery. And all those other people out there who are doing it are the problem, right? That's, that's so easy as a pastor. And I am I, sure if you went through the archives of this church and you looked at all the sermons I've preached here, I would be very surprised if I didn't touch on those issues. It's, it's red meat. <laughs> and it's so easy to go, well, you know, if society only did X or Y or Z, things would improve. And yet that's very deceptive and it's very wrong-headed. It's not wrong-headed because it's wrong to call out sin, but because if we're not careful, even if society did all of those things that we're prescribing, we would be whitewashing tombs. We would be cleaning the outside of cups, but the filth would still be inside. I think many times, many times, we content ourselves to clean the outside of the cup, modifying actions. As long as everything looks good, you know, as long as everything seems like it's all in order, we will settle for behavior modification, moralism, while all the while we need the deepest heart change at the deepest level of who we are. But we'll settle for behavior modification because it's easier to force, it's easier to make it happen, and it's easier to see the results of. When my heart's in a good place, you might not be able to tell. Why is that? Because I'm such a good actor. Right? Sunday morning comes, you say, Pastor Adam, how you doing today? And I say, I'm doing great. Am I doing great? Let's hope so. But you see, if all you're looking for is behavior change, you want to see that smile. You want to see things seem like they're doing all right. Well, it's very easy to settle for those things. It's very easy to say, well, good, all right, excellent. But Christian, please remember, sin can only be cut off at the roots. Sin can only be cut off at the heart level. And that happens by using God's tools. His tools are the word of God. His tools are the sacraments. His tools are prayer. And those things only really change us by the work of God's spirit. There are no practical steps that you can take, that you can undertake, that will ultimately and sufficiently deliver you from sin. Because you need God to reorient your heart. And I need God to change my affections so that I love Him more than unrighteousness. You need the work of the Spirit 
Conveniently, that is exactly who comes to the rescue in the third point this, this evening. So third tonight, we are reminded that ultimately even sin happens under the sovereignty of God. In verse 20, Saul finds out David is in Naoth at Ramah, so he sends soldiers to capture him. But the text says, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. And this happens again and again and again. And each time that these men come, they are foiled and prevented by the Spirit from capturing David. But you see, Saul, Saul thinks that he is an immovable force, up against the other immovable force. And so Saul himself goes. And the same thing happens. The Spirit of God comes upon him and prevents him from laying hands on David. You know, it is so striking. These are professional soldiers. They work in the service of the king, and yet none of Saul's messengers can overcome or overrule God's will. You see, David is an immortal as long as God wills him to live. This is not good news for Saul, nor is it great news for those who want to destroy God's people. It's wonderful news, though, if you're a child of God. It's wonderful news for you if you are a child of God. Because just like with David here, there is not one thing that can happen to you or me apart from God's will. Not one thing. Jesus says it this way, not even a hair can fall from your head apart from God's sovereignty. This means that there is no trouble so great that we can't be protected in the midst of trouble. John Knox is really the father of Presbyterianism. He took the Reformation in Geneva, at Calvin's Geneva, and he brought it to the Scottish people, and Scotland became Presbyterian in, in large part because of the work of John Knox. And so John Knox wrote a, a treatise on prayer, and he says this about living life in light of God's sovereignty over sin. He gets very personal here. I want you to hear what he says. The notion that God delivers his chosen from their enemies is not written for David only, but for all those who shall suffer tribulation until the end of the world. For I, John Knox, let this be said to the acclaim and praise of God alone, in anguish of mine and vehement tribulation and affliction, called on the Lord when not only the ungodly, but even my faithful brothers, judged my case to be, be irremediable. And yet in my greatest calamity and when my pains were most cruel, God's eternal wisdom willed that my hands should be a writer, far contrary to the judgment of carnal reason, which his mercy, which his mercy has proved true. Blessed be his holy name. And therefore, I dare to be bold in the, in the truth of God's word to promise that, notwithstanding the vehemence of trouble, the long continuance of it, the despair of all people and fearfulness, danger, pain, and anguish of our own hearts, yet if we call constantly to God, even beyond all human expectation, he shall deliver. This is firsthand from a man who says, I know how I survived. I know how I made it. Just like David was delivered here by the supernatural work of God, the Spirit of God coming upon David's enemies so that he would not be killed, John Knox says, I prayed to God and I prayed strong, powerful prayers, the sort of prayers that I had no right to ask of God, and he answered them. 
You see, the knowledge that God is sovereign over sin means that we can move forward, not just knowing that, that we're protected in natural disasters or, or sickness, but that we're protected even from the schemes and plans and ideas of other people. God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty is not a promise that we will not suffer. I don't know if I say that enough. I want you to hear it. I want you to believe it because someday you will suffer. And what, I would, would, what would cause me great anguish as a pastor is if you had ever been led to believe that suffering and the sovereignty of God do not go together. Your suffering is under the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God does not mean that he will lift the suffering. God's sovereignty is not a promise that we won't suffer, and, God, and suffering is not evidence that we've fallen through God's cracks. Never, ever. Look at David's life. David's life is full of trouble, full of tribulation, full of suffering, and he still died like we all will someday. He still died. And so, so God's sovereignty doesn't mean a life free of pain. It means a life that is free of purposeless pain. Hear me again one more time. God's sovereignty does not mean that we live a life free of pain. It means we live a life that is free of purposeless pain. Saul can do absolutely nothing here. He is powerless. See, God overrules every plan that he, he cooks up, even to the point of intervening directly and without even using providence to do it. He just totally overcomes the will of the assassins and totally overwhelms the will of Saul. Their free will is destroyed here. This is not your favorite passage if you're a big proponent of the notion of libertarian free will. Because they are absolutely overcome by the Spirit of God here. They are not able to act at all. Or make choices even of their own. And yet God is absolutely free to do this. Where does the rescue come from tonight? Now it isn't a saving heart change like we might yearn for. We keep hoping that Saul's going to have that, that heart change as we read the passage. But... Instead, the deliverance that, that they get is it's a type of temporal salvation. And, and it's a type of salvation that comes only from God's Spirit alone. Now, I, I said this, I've said this before, and, and I say this again. There is nothing that replaces the divine heart work that we really need. Without God's work in our hearts to change our affection, to take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, all we're ever going to do is manage behavior. We, we move our sins around. We shuffle them around the board. We put new ones in the place of, of old ones, right? That's, that's our best effort that we can do. God's purpose is not, in this passage, to, to bring salvation to Saul. But what God is doing is he is managing Saul's behavior for the sake of David's life. But we really do need something deeper. We do need something much greater. You know, about a thousand years after tonight's passage, the Bible introduces us to another Saul. And this is another Saul who also breathed out threats against God's people. It's another Saul that tried to destroy God's people. 
You see in the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus was walking the road to Damascus when God struck him down and changed his heart forever, something that didn't happen with King Saul. And when he struck Saul down, he changed his heart and reordered his loves and reordered his hates. The Apostle Paul offers us a reminder that the sovereignty of God over sin means that God is able to also conquer the hardest, harshest heart that there is. You see, God doesn't just change Paul's actions. He doesn't just stop him from attacking Christians, but he reorients his heart, right? He reorients his mind and his will. King Saul never had that. It's what he needed here, but God in his sovereignty did not give it to him. We begin by looking at King Saul, but we end by giving a nod to the Apostle Saul. Why is that? Because on the one hand, King Saul is, in a sense, a hopeless case. We know by the end of 1 Samuel that he doesn't return to the Lord. We know that he lives the rest of his life in rebellion. And so if you're reading this book and you're looking at King Saul and you're looking for hope in the life of King Saul, you will not find it. But the Apostle Saul, on the other hand, well, if God can change this Saul's heart, he could change any heart. We need that good news. We need it badly. Do you see in your own heart that something has to change? Do you see in your own heart that what you've got in here is not sufficient, it's not enough, it's not going to take care of your deepest needs? Because I tell you this, if you have inordinate loves for things then you know that you know are wrong, God does hold the answer. He says there is hope and it's here tonight. The same God who transforms Saul into Paul can transform you. So this is my appeal, this is my urging to you. Put your faith in Jesus and his spirit will work on you daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly to turn that dial down so that your love for God and your hatred of sin change from the inside out. This is our God. He can do this. Let's ask him to. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is extraordinary to think that you are a powerful Lord who changes hearts, transforms lives, and takes people who once hated you and turn them into your friends. Would you do that in our own lives? Would you take us and change us, renew and refine us? Give us daily strength to trust in your Son, and bit by bit would you renew and change us day by day into your image. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.